BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is a special New Year's edition of The Argument. This week, we're answering your questions. We asked you to leave us voicemails asking any questions you wanted, and we've picked a few to play on the show. I feel like the caller wants you guys to pick somebody here. Can't you pick somebody? Then we're joined by a special guest, Ashley Nicole Black. She's a correspondent and Emmy-winning writer from Full Frontal with Samantha Bee. These are nice, compassionate people who sound terrible because they're coming to their opinion based on a different set of facts than I have. And finally, we tell you our hopes for the new year. Once they're in jail, I will kind of, I will have closure. When we started this show, we had no idea how many of you would call us and leave voicemails. Your messages are thoughtful, they're passionate, they're funny. So we want to spend a whole segment answering your questions. Here's the first. Hi, my name is Cynthia Robles from California. I absolutely love the argument. And I'm a psychotherapist, and I see teenagers and young adults are coming in without any social skills. And I would like you to address the impact of the Internet, especially gaming, on the youth. Is this actually benefiting our future or is it going to become a big social problem? Thank you. Bye-bye. What a nice, what a nice lady. I know. What a nice person. I, maybe if, if she was in New York, I could use a new therapist. Um, <laughs> okay, so I... <laughs> so I think that, I mean, my response is that I think it's going to cause terrible social problems and lots of human misery. I'm a little bit reluctant to speak to the video game part of it because I just don't know a lot about video games. And I understand that my revulsion and fear of video game culture is probably analogous to earlier generations' revulsion and fear of comic books or television, right? And I understand that these things, there tends to be kind of generational panic about new mediums that then subsides. So, you know, so maybe it's not all bad. But social media seems to just be an unmitigated curse for young people. It terrifies me what it's going to be like when my own kids are old enough to be exposed to all this, take all the social pressures of middle school and high school, and then make them an inescapable part of your life. I mean, it just seems like absolute torture. And then when you think on top of that about, you know, for girls in particular, all of the anxiety that they have about what they look like and imagine that in a world where you are day by day constantly having to obsess about your self-presentation. I mean, my hope is that by the time my kids are old enough, that these things have like been burned to the ground. David, Michelle and I, I, I think our kids are about the same age and your kids are a little older, right? Right. Tell us about how you're managing the transition towards middle school and high school 
and social media if you are managing it? Uh, extremely conservatively, meaning I don't have my kids use social media. And obviously at some point, nearly all teenagers and adults will use social media. The three of us all use it. But I really agree with the negative case here, which is I think that social media has a lot of big downsides, right? I mean, we all get these super angry emails from readers, right? And then sometimes you respond and then they realize, wait a second, I'm communicating with a human being. And then they kind of apologize. And social media is just one big version of that. And you combine that with 12 and 14-year-old brains using it. And I just think it really does argue for being fairly restrictive uh, with this stuff as a parent. And not just restrictive as a parent, but recognizing that the main way, if you're worried your kids are using their phones too much, that you can affect them is use your own phone less because kids will do much more mimicking than they will do following directions. The one caveat I would raise is that I don't think I don't want to kind of glamorize what adolescence was like I agree. before social media. Like, I mean, I'm very negative about this stuff, but I also, I was really lonely and alienated as a kid in like a kind of Philistine suburb. And, you know, I think that it would have been much easier for me to find a community if I had had access to the internet. You know, instead I had to wait till I was older before I had friends who I had anything, who I felt like I had anything in common with. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's no question that the internet give something to a particular kind of alienated teen, even as it also makes certain forms of alienation worse. And, you know, it creates it creates forms of community that, you know, lots of kids can't find or struggle to find in fleshed reality. But at the same time, even that has costs, right? Like I was the kind of kid who read a lot of fantasy novels in high school. And had I spent all of my waking hours on internet sites devoted to that kind of fandom, would that have been good for my intellectual development? I don't know. There, you know, there are ways in which sort of the horrors of, of high school also, you know, force people to sort of engage with parts of the world that aren't just sort of these hermetic worlds of people who like the same things you like. Well, actually, let me end this on an up note, which is adolescents and teenagers, I think, are a lot nicer than they were when I was an adolescent. If you think about what it was like 30 years ago to be an adolescent who was gay, who really struggled in school, who was disabled, who looked unlike other people in their community, I'm not saying it's easy today because it's not. But I really do think it's just less acceptable in a lot of public settings to be mean in certain ways. Hi, my name is Allison Silverman, and I have a question for the argument. I'd like to know what we can do about income inequality in America, whether you think that there'll ever be a middle class again, whether there'll ever be social and economic mobility in the United States like there used to be. And if so, how? What can be done? Thank you, Allison. So to me, there are a bunch of answers that are correct, like education. And I think some of the things that Ross often talks about and conservatives often talk about, like family structure, are really important. The more I've thought about this, the more I've come to think that the single most important thing is political power. And that I hope 
that we see in this movement that sprung up in response to Donald Trump, I hope we see the beginnings of a long-term political movement that can address this because there's nothing inevitable about how much of our economic gains over the last 30 or 40 years have gone to really rich people. Um, that's not what happened in the 30 or 40 years after World War II. And so this is, you can think of this as a political struggle. The economy produces a certain amount of bounty and um, people have to, to divide up that bounty. And the way things have happened in our country, when you think about the decline of labor unions, when you think about deregulation, when you think about a whole series of things, is that the middle class has essentially lost political power. And as it's lost political power, it's also lost the kind of economic gains that it used to have. I realize that sounds like a somewhat Marxian analysis. And so I assume I've sufficiently baited you into disagreeing with it, Ross. I mean, I'd, I'd frame it a little differently. I think the story of the last few decades in not just America, but the West is a story of policymaking that tries to pursue growth and then assumes that with enough government redistribution or enough tax cuts or some combination thereof that this growth will be broadly shared and everything will work out. And if there are losers from globalization and free trade and everything, they will be retrained or given health insurance or otherwise taken care of by the safety net. And I think a lot of the politics of populism, left-wing and right-wing in the US and Europe, is a politics of the working class saying, this isn't actually a good deal for us. Because in the end, even if we're being taken care of in some sense by the safety net, even if we're getting taken care of by Obamacare, to pick you know, the most recent example, that's not what we ultimately want. What we ultimately want are good jobs that pay well, that let us support our families. And that isn't what Medicaid offers. What do you think is the most promising way, Ross, to provide people with good jobs, not simply redistributing income, but as you said, a policy that would actually give people the dignity that comes with meaningful work? I, it's a really hard problem. I mean, I think the policy levers that I tend to be willing to pull are ones that basically subsidize work and family, that basically say, look, there's a clear interaction between having a good paying job, having a stable family, stable families beget upward mobility. So we want to sort of intervene at that nexus and say, we're going to have wage subsidies and child tax credits, and we're going to make it easier to have your job pay well while you're trying to raise a family. So that, that's, that's sort of the government intervention. But, but that doesn't per se create the jobs, right? It's just sort of coming into the economy after the fact and saying, all right, we're going to take this job that doesn't pay well and make it pay a little better. There is sort of a deeper question that is tangled up in issues of trade and monopoly and a lot of things that people are sort of wrestling with right now that I think maybe gets you closer to the basic question of how do you get the good jobs themselves? But I don't have a, a definite agenda there right now. And I'd argue that those questions of trade monopoly are connected to political power in part, and that part of, of reclaiming political power for the middle class also has to involve taking on uh, the huge power of big business right now. Michelle, how do you think about all this? You know, I think that a lot of progressives are kind of talking about the jobs that could be created by a massive government program to retrofit the our infrastructure to eventually reach carbon neutrality. And, you know, if you're kind of saying that subsidizing the sort of shitty jobs that are out there isn't going to get us towards plentiful, meaningful work, well, I think a lot of jobs proposed by the advocates of a Green New Deal would be those kind of jobs. 
Hi, this is Colin Neenan from Bridgeport, Connecticut. I am begging you guys, begging you guys, to please consider the question, what Democratic candidate stands the best chance of beating Donald Trump? I know the answer. It is Sherrod Brown, but I am hoping that one of you will be persuaded and come up with the right answer as well. Thank you. Shall I go first? Yeah, you should. You, you haven't yet. Okay, so I'm not going to say Sherrod Brown's the only choice. I think he's a good choice. I think Brown and Amy Klobuchar are the two candidates who, if I were a Democrat and I just wanted to crush Trump in the general election, I would want one or even both of them on the ticket. I think Midwestern well-liked figures are an obvious way to go. Brown is the only Democratic politician sort of hanging on successfully in Ohio, even as it turns red. And Klobuchar is insanely popular in the state of Minnesota. And I'd give the edge, slight edge to Klobuchar only because I think a sort of nice, competent, reasonable, likable woman from the Midwest plays against Donald Trump in a particularly effective way. So I guess my view is that it doesn't really make sense to try to reverse engineer the kind of ideal Democrat. I mean, I would be thrilled with a Sherrod Brown candidacy. I would be happy with an Amy Klobuchar candidacy. But I actually think that we don't yet know who is going to inspire real passion and enthusiasm. And the ability to do that is as important as any sort of combination of traits. I mean, nobody would have thought if you were just saying, you know, what is the best Democrat to win in 2008? Probably most of us would have said John Edwards. We definitely wouldn't have said the first term senator from Chicago named Barack Hussein Obama, right? But he had that ineffable quality that made a lot of people want to just completely put their lives on hold and do anything to get him elected. And that's why you support Beto O'Rourke. You know, I mean, I felt like Beto did that in Texas, whether he could do that on the national stage. I mean, I simply have no idea. I think, you know, it would probably be good to have someone very young and vital and to draw a contrast to Trump's sort of like cranky old man decrepitude. But my only criteria is I want the candidate that really excites people. I agree, Michelle, with you that it we shouldn't try, as either pundits or voters out there, shouldn't try to genetically engineer a candidate. I mean, to me, whether it's Sherrod Brown or Amy Klobuchar or Kamala Harris, who also I think is a potentially impressive candidate, whoever it is, to me, the most important thing is not who exactly they are, but that they run a campaign that is populist in nature and essentially taps into the fact that American people want a politician who's on their okay, side. Okay, look, 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 and, look, look. This no. Guys, guys, I mean, I feel like the caller wants you guys to pick somebody here. Can't you pick somebody? Who, who You walk into that voting booth right now, David Leonhardt, and all 20 names are on the ballot. Who are you going to vote for? So I'll half play along and half duck. I <laughs> think the best candidates right now for the Democrats are the younger Democrats. So that's Kamala Harris, Sherrod Brown. Mitch Landrio, who we haven't talked about yet. Um, it's that generation rather than the candidates like 
Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, who have been around for a really long time. And I do think Beto O'Rourke should run if you're asking if you're asking us to kind of take a strong position, because what we see is uh, when you have a moment like Beto is having, it, it usually doesn't come around again. I'm glad I've coaxed one terrible opinion out of you, David. Um, <laughs> Michelle, who do you love? You just said we want a can you need a candidate who excites people. So who excites you? Well, most of them excite me. I mean, you know, and I should say full disclosure, my husband has consulted for Elizabeth Warren. I love Elizabeth Warren. I think she would probably be the best president out of all of them, just in terms of her understanding of how to use the levers of government power to kind of challenge entrenched inequality and corporate power. Um, But I would be thrilled. I would be thrilled with Kamala Harris. I would be thrilled with Kirsten Gillibrand. I would be thrilled with a lot of these people. And sort of, again, I feel like who excites me, it will really depend on who we see has the ability to inspire a movement. Well, this is definitely a subject that we will be talking about again this year. Thanks to all of you who sent in questions for us to address. Please keep sending in your ideas, your criticisms, your suggestions, and we will revisit your comments throughout the next season. You can do so by leaving us a voicemail, 347-915-4324. And if you do, we may play you on the show. Right now, we're going to take a quick break. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com matter. That's netsuite.com matter. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, Plus, This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. We're back, and now we're joined by a special guest in honor of the new year, Ashley Nicole Black. She's an Emmy-winning writer and a correspondent on Full Frontal with Samantha Bee. And Ashley also hosts her own advice podcast called Sip on This. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Ashley. Hey, Ashley. (laughs) Ashley, we wanted to have you on because this is really a vital time for comedy, but it's also a tricky time. And since we're fans of yours, we wanted your help in thinking all this through. How do you do comedy at a time when there is a lot of serious dark stuff going on in the world right now? I don't have another option. Um, I'm just a person who deals with my feelings in a way that makes other people laugh. Like, I was the kid who would come home and be like, Mom, Dad, I'm so upset. I have to tell you about this. And they'd be like trying not to laugh in my face. Just the way I express myself makes people laugh. So uh, I found a way to make money off of it, and I'm sticking to it. I definitely have had therapists who are like, you know, it seems like when you get a tough feeling you deal with it with humor let's work on that and I'm like no let's work on something else like (laughs) 
this is how I pay my rent. People feel like they need comedy, but they're also reasonably asking, are there subjects that aren't really appropriate for comedy? Um, I don't think there's anything that can't be covered by comedy. The question is, it gets a lot more difficult with some topics rather than others. So, for example, like on our show, it's like, can we make a joke about this? Absolutely. And then some things it'll be like, can we make a joke about this? Well, it would take us three months to figure out a way through that minefield to make it funny without being offensive to the wrong people. So maybe we won't do that one. But I think if you have the time and talent and you want to, anything can be benefit from looking at it in a new way. And that's all getting a laugh is, is taking something very expected and breaking it. And that feeling of surprise is what produces a laugh. So anything difficult can benefit from that. It's just much harder to do with some things than with others. What are the hardest topics to do comedy on? Uh, I mean, the one we're talking about the most that is so hard is talking about the child separation policy, because it's just so visceral as a human being to know how you would feel to be separated from your family. And it's so hard to find comedy when you're feeling that feeling about a story. The benefit of this time to comedy is that the person who is sort of the villain is the most powerful man in the world. And the thing about comedy is you can always punch up. Like comedy has been since its inception designed to speak truth to power and to punch up to the powerful. So luckily, like the most ridiculous this person happens to also be the most powerful. So you can kind of like always make fun of the president. I've been so angry for the last, I don't know, I guess it's now two years and one month. Do you feel like anger is an inspiration for comedy? Or do you feel like kind of it gets in the way because, you know, eventually, I don't know, I find my own anger exhausting a lot of the time. I think anger is an inspiration for a lot of things. I think like, when something bad happens, your natural responses are maybe anger or sadness. And sadness is an emotion that puts you on your couch with a carton of ice cream and a soft blanket. And anger is an emotion that gets you packing your bags and leaving that man. You know what I mean? So I feel like anger is an emotion that moves forward. And if you're going to then write a joke or go out and march or whatever it is, anger can be very propelling in that way. What do you think about the kind of – it's almost like an internal civil war in a way between comedians um, in certain ways, I feel like, about sort of both what the political rules around comedy are and sort of what counts as comedy. I mean I'm thinking of sort of – you know, you could sort of take Bill Maher and Hannah Gadsby as, as sort of two poles <laughs> of that, of that well, debate, right? <laughs> I wouldn't call that a war because a civil war, both sides have to be fighting. <laughs> what it is in comedy, it's a lot of a certain generation of white men being like, this is comedy and this isn't. And then a younger generation of men, women, people of color who are just doing comedy and not really fighting back. They're just doing comedy. And Well, well uh, but what about a non-Bill Maher example, right? So our page ran a piece by <laughs> Nimesh Patel, who is a comedian mm-hmm. who got sort of ushered off stage, I guess you could say, at Columbia for making what the organizers of the comedy event said was thought was an insensitive jokes about black people and homosexuality. And he, he wrote a piece basically thinking through whether or not he deserved to be ushered off stage. Yeah, I really love that piece because I thought that he was like 
really thoughtfully working through, well, I think this is a funny joke. People have laughed at it. So obviously it is comedy. This audience said it wasn't for them. And part of being a comic is that that is said to you all the time. You go to the club, you don't get any laughs. You go home and you rewrite that piece. You know, you write a pilot. It doesn't get picked up by the network. You go home and make another one. A big part of comedy is people telling you, we don't want this. And that's just part of the process. It's part of how you hone your material. And also something can be honed and work 99% of the time and you still have that one night where you just die. And that's just part of comedy. I don't think that that experience is very new. Finding an audience who's like, no, you're not for me is just part of it. I think that now everything is so politicized now that even that has become politicized. Oh, they must not like me because I'm a white man or, oh, they must not like me because I did. It's like, no, actually, sometimes people not liking you is has always been part of the process. Can you take us behind the scenes of Full Frontal, which somehow seems like a bad thing to say, uh, <laughs> and tell us what happens when when big news breaks? So obviously, part of your job is to react to the big news, but to do so in a way that's very different from the way Michelle Ross and I do it, which is to make people laugh. And I mean, do you spend time first trying to absorb and understand the news? Do you immediately start brainstorming jokes together? What does it look like when when you are greeted with some big, huge news story and it's time to to wrap your minds around it? So we're on weekly. We're not on daily. So that makes the process a little bit different. So we do have longer form, more forward-looking pieces about 50% of the time. And then our show tapes on Wednesday. So Monday, Tuesday is when we're looking at those like stories that have just happened. Um, We do a lot of like chatting online. I know like on 30 Rock, they're all sitting in a room together, peeing in jars, and it looks real fun. But uh, that's not how it happens on our show. (laughs) We're all nerds and we're all individually alone somewhere typing. And so as we're responding to the news. We have a really great research team. So we're also like asking them questions. What does this mean? Can you put this in a historical context? Is this a new thing that Trump is doing? Or is this something that we've always been doing? And now it's weird because he's saying it like, as we're trying to get the story, we're also like doing bits with each other and kind of figuring out what our comedic take on it by like trying to make each other laugh. So Ashley, you've got a podcast too, which is called Sip on this. And it comes from an advice column you wrote for Dame Magazine. What's your favorite kind of advice question to answer? Oh, my favorite is I get a lot of women about to make a big step. I think like as terrible as this time has been, it's also been really powerful for women. And so a lot of women are like, you know what, I'm going to start that business. I'm going to leave that man. I want to raise my kids to be better citizens. And most of the time in the letter, they've written all the right answers in the letter and they're just writing in. So someone will tell them, yeah, do that thing. And <laughs> it's really great because I get like so excited for them. Like, oh, my God, when you start this business, like your life is going to be like I always wish that I could hear, you know, like six months later how it's going, because people are just like stepping into their power in a really beautiful way right now. Our listeners know that I'm slightly obsessed with food, Ashley. So <laughs> since it's since it's January, I have to ask, um, do you get advice questions from people who want to figure out how to eat better? And is there official sip on this advice about doing that? I think people can look at me and know that I'm not the person to give you that advice. My advice is eat whatever you want and enjoy it. <laughs> and if anyone has anything to say about it, scream at them. <laughs> like Everyone is in charge of their own body. That's how I handle the Christmas holidays. Something that all of our jobs have in common is that we talk with people who we disagree with um, as part of our jobs. 
And one of your most famous bits is when you went to the 2016 Republican National Convention and tried to get attendees there to say Black Lives Matter. Is there any way for Black people to say they matter, they're awesome, they love themselves, that wouldn't upset white people? Um, you know, I, 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 why, I, I mean, I don't think that white people go around and say that I love white people. I mean, it's, it's okay to be you proud can. of your heritage. I mean, you want, If you want to say that right there, now, there I would is. be in support of that. I, I guess I'm curious what, Ashley, you've learned about interacting with people who you disagree with. Uh, That was the perfect time to do that because it was 2016 and it was before we sort of understood or before I personally understood how bifurcated our news was. So I was talking to people who wouldn't say Black Lives Matter because they truly believed it was like a terrorist organization that was killing people, which is just factually not true and not even close to true. And I couldn't begin to imagine where that information came from. But when the same, when you talk to like 50 people and they're all saying the same thing to you, it's like, well, 50 people didn't individually make this up. Some quote unquote news outlet has reported to them that something is happening that's not happening. And when we went to the DNC, like a, a week or a couple weeks later, I met Cory Booker and he was like, what did you learn at the RNC? And I was like, I think we have a problem. <laughs> and that was like the first moment that I identified. I go, we have a problem. Uh, they have a different set of information that we have. And I don't know how you could possibly communicate with them because they're just getting a different set of facts and they're making very logical choices based on the facts that they have. Like if you believe that an organization is killing people, you're not going to be supportive of it. And there's nothing I could say to convince you that it's like not nice not to do that because you have a different set of facts than me. So how can we communicate? And so I, re- I what I learned is that these are a lot of times like nice, compassionate people who sound terrible because they're coming to their opinion based on a different set of facts than I have. And yet that segment kind of ends on an optimistic note, right? I mean, you have some real human interactions with some of the people you're talking to. Yeah. And you'll notice it's women and younger men. And having done this for a little while, I have a much greater success getting to a real interaction often with women and younger people because I just think like when you are face to face with someone, it's very hard to continue yelling talking points in their face. And that's usually the first two minutes of any interview is just someone telling me whatever Hannity said last night. And but once I'm interacting with them for like 10 minutes, we just start talking as humans. And, you know, I like your sweater. Oh, and or even sometimes I'll say a joke and they're like, oh, I really disagree with you. But that was actually funny. And then, you know, the ice kind of thaws and we can have a real conversation. And once we open up to each other, there is more of an exchange that happens. You know, on the one hand, it's it's good to be reminded that people are human and complicated and have more dimensions. But on the other hand, I often feel like, you know, particularly with people on the American right, I come away from conversations with them, you know, not Ross, but like, you know, never, never Ross, just the others feeling <laughs> more pessimistic than ever about our ability to have any sort of dialogue. Yeah, I mean, for me, my job is not to convince anyone, and that's not what I'm there to do. My job is to make comedy. So the only way that I can engage you as a partner in comedy is for us to get to a state of play. 
Um, and I train as an improviser and we train and it's so weird because our job is to play pretend, but we train for years and years and years. So any stage that I step on with another improviser, we can instantly get to that state of play and create something together to create that relationship with a complete stranger who's not a trained improviser is an insane thing to try to do in 10 minutes. And so to me, it is hopeful that like you're a complete stranger who I don't agree with on anything. I don't know if you've ever met a black person before. And if I if we can get to a state of play, which is the state that I spend time with my most trusted community in, if I can get to that with you in 10 minutes and I can do that 40 times a day often on one of these conventions or the inauguration or something, that's amazing. That's very hopeful. That is pure humanity. When you go into those interviews, are you energized or are you kind of dreading having to spend that much time approaching strangers? Um, A little bit of both because I have a very extreme social anxiety, actually. (laughs) So I'm very comfortable um, like on stage or in front of a camera, but I would never talk to a stranger like in a store. So I have to kind of get myself in a like, you're at work, it's okay um, <laughs> kind of mode. But I really enjoy, I actually really enjoy meeting and talking to people once I get over that fear every time. <laughs> What's the hardest interview situation you've ever had to try and crack? Um, you know who are really hard to interview is politicians because they've practiced. When we're just talking to random people on the street, they didn't know they were going to get talked to. And they've already said yes to the interview. So they're a pretty game person. Politicians have a set of things that they were told to say to you that day. And I'm sure they're on guard with all interviewers, but with comedy even more so because they're afraid of looking silly. Um, and so it can be really hard to get them to like get their guard down and have a conversation. So something that journalists and comedians have in common. We are perpetually (laughs) frustrated by trying to interview politicians. I do actually think there's a profound lesson here, which is uh, particularly for younger people. I think a lot of younger people assume when they see someone like you, Ashley, that, oh, that must come easily to her. And yet one of the things I've learned from talking to a lot of people who've had success over the years is many people have had success doing things they find inherently really, really difficult, and yet they overcome that. And just because you find something hard doesn't mean you should give it a shot. Yeah. And also, even like um, if you find something scary, that's often exactly the thing that you should be doing. Like you're feeling fear because something inside of you knows that there is a greater precipice on the other side of that. And I was able to work on that ability because I train as an improviser and you're taught, like, follow the fear. So as soon as you're in a scene and you're about to say something and you're like, oh, no, this is socially unacceptable. I can't say this. Or your scene partner does something that creates fear in you. You're trained to run into that, to do it faster, as hard as you can. And that's always when you get the biggest laughs. And that's always when you have the greatest connections and the great success. And then sort of like taking that into real life. Like when Samantha asked me to be on camera, I was so terrified. And like as soon as I opened my mouth to say no, I was like, oh, I have to say yes to this. I wouldn't be this afraid if it wasn't something that I needed to do. Well, before we wrap up, uh, we asked you to bring something today, Ashley. And we also each brought something, which is a hope for the year 2019, something we each hope will happen this year. And Ross, we are going to make you go first. So what are you hoping for in 2019? I'm I'm hoping for um, the argument to debut its inevitable HBO special with special guest <laughs> Ashley Nicole Black. So I think that's a totally reasonable hope, and we'll all be back together for it next autumn. 
Michelle, what about you? So I have two totally contradictory hopes. I mean, on the one hand, I really hope to not have Trump and his terrible family in my head so much and to write about things that are kind of go beyond the daily crisis of these administration and let go of some of my incredible anger about what's been going on. But I also really hope that at least some Trump family members go to jail. That is quite a I hope. Those are, I think those are compatible. <laughs> once they're in jail, you won't have to, you won't have to think about them. Right. Once that's true, once they're in jail, I will kind of You'll be, be able, able to, to that will be, I will have closure. <laughs> Well, I used to have only pretty much one hope for every year, which is that the Boston Red Sox would win the World Series. Now, bizarrely, that happens many years. So (laughs) I will turn my hopes to more uh, important matters. Um, I hope 2019 continues what started in 2018, which is Americans realizing that climate change is for real. And I hope that happens with as little damage in 2019 as possible. But uh, that is honestly my hope for 2019, because as we've talked about before on this podcast, I'm really scared about climate change. And I think the only hope for getting more people to understand what's going on is through forms of weather that makes them realize things are really but what changing. if there were an what if there were an hbo special of the argument about climate change wouldn't that be just as effective as wildfires but with less damage if i thought that would persuade people i'd be all in favor of it but i'm looking for that middle ground of <laughs> persuasive without destruction people say you should always leave the punchline to last so ashley we've made you go last after at least michelle and i have <laughs> have given dark hopes for 2019 i'm actually distracted imagining the fox news climate change special <laughs> it's two minutes long <laughs> not happening <laughs> and then credits um my so i chose very carefully because it was like i have the ear of the new york times my hope for 2019 is that people start taking Stacey Abrams seriously as a national contender. Like, it is insane to me. I mean, this poll, to be fair, was taken in Iowa, but like the top Democratic um, candidates for 2020 are Beto O'Rourke, Joe Biden, um, and Bernie Sanders. And I'm like, did people not notice Stacey Abrams get out the vote effort and like how amazing her campaign was? And like, I feel like Everything the Democrats need to do in 2020 was done in Georgia, minus what they should have done before that was take care of the voter suppression (laughs) efforts, Um, which apparently their first package of bills is going to be about voting rights, which is amazing. If they do that and then follow her model, I think they'll do really well. Um, But it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. Ashley, thank you for joining us. You can find much more of Ashley's work on Full Frontal with Samantha B, which airs Wednesdays at 10.30 on TBS. And Ashley's podcast is called Sip on This. Ashley, thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me. Thank, thank you. you, Ashley. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. And if you have questions or comments about the show, leave us a voicemail, 347-915-4324. That's 347-915-4324. If you do, we may play you on the show. This week's show was produced by Alex Laughlin for Transmitter Media with help from Caitlin Pierce. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Ian Prasad Philbrick, and Freddie Chavez. Thank you to Kaiser Health News. Our theme was composed by Allison Leighton Brown, and we'll be back next week. Happy New Year to all of you. 
But you guys don't get to use the flirting tactic as much as we do, which actually really helps. <laughs> you don't. You don't know what style I have. I. You, you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs>